Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I listen to as many great audio stories as I can and share the best of what I hear with you. Coming up today, how Freddie Mercury inspired another famous figure in Great Lives from the BBC. Then the podcaster and stand-up comedian Mark Maron. He's been recording WTF in his garage for nearly a decade. Well, it's just celebrated its 1,000th episode. I was panicking all morning. You know, I, I don't imagine you were flying in here on the chopper thinking like, you know, I, I am nervous about Mark. No, I wasn't. Okay, well, that's good. That yeah. makes <laughs> That would be a problem. It would be a problem. If the president was feeling yeah. stressed about <laughs> Coming to my garage. Coming to your garage. Do you think this, this is the best work you're doing of your life right now? Well, that's kind of difficult, you know, because I was in the Beatles. After that, another podcast made in a garage, but this one's in Bay of Plenty movie reviews in 20 cues. I'm going with something I've never heard of. Hopefully it doesn't exist. And that is a glowworm-based superhero. Right. <laughs> and there it is. There's the what the <laughs> moment of the podcast. <laughs> no. I'm going to make sure everyone can make it to the toilet at night. <laughs> Finally, the Pineapple Project from the ABC aims to improve your work life and how to have better meetings. I mean, can you say, uh, just just up top, I just want to let everyone know I have to be gone at 11.25. Yeah, I call that the hard stop. So yeah. you just announce when you walk in, hey, everyone, i got a hard stop at 12. Ooh, hard stop. Yeah, I know, right? That sounds like it's really serious. Could be lunch, but they don't need yeah. to know that. <laughs> and if you want to recommend a favourite podcast to feature or next time you just hear something good, then please let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. in your life has inspired you? A parent, teacher, friend, maybe even somebody famous. Great Lives is a biographical show from the BBC where notable guests choose someone who's inspired them and tell host Matthew Paris why. It's been going since 2001 and it's now on to its 48th series, so it's already got hundreds and hundreds of great lives to choose from. Picture the scene. Wembley Stadium, 13th of July, 1985. A man with a moustache, dressed in a white vest and stonewashed jeans, strolls to the front of the crowd and starts to sing. And the crowd sings back. All right! Freddie Mercury singing at Live Aid in 1985. So, who was Freddie? 
Joining me to discuss his life is the journalist and author of Freddie's biography, Bohemian Rhapsody, Leslie-Ann Jones, and also with me, his nominator, Matt Lucas, a man who needs no introduction to fans of Little Britain, Shooting Stars and Doctor Who. Matt, tell us why you've chosen Freddie Mercury as your great life. He was the greatest vocalist of the 20th century, and I was really shocked that uh, when I suggested Freddie, I thought, well, I'm sure somebody would have chosen him already. Yes, I was surprised that no-one yes, had. really surprised. But then I suppose you have posher people than me usually <laughs> on this show and they pick Lloyd George or Munch or Debussy or someone like that. But is that it, that he's the greatest vocalist of the 20th century? Is there more? Uh, there's a lot more. For me personally, as a scared homosexual teenager... He was a superhero to me. And in an age where there was so little visibility of gay performers, other than the very politicised ones, Freddie was like a, almost like a cartoon character. Can you remember the first time you saw him, live or on TV or where? I remember being very young and there was some kind of retrospective pop programme on BBC Two. I think to commemorate 10 years of BBC Two or 15 years. And um, they showed the Bohemian Rhapsody video. And I was terrified by it. And I didn't realise at first that that was the guy who sings Flash. I think that was probably my first awareness. But I'd already... I got a Greatest Hits album... Uh, well, I got a cassette that I copied off a friend, which is what we used to do on cassettes. And then I realised that I already knew a lot of the songs. I just never pieced them together as being by the same band. So I already knew We Are The Champions and I'm sure I used to sing I Want To Ride My Bicycle In The Playground. And I was just enchanted. And then I remember seeing live footage of the band on television... I remember Under Pressure. I mean, so I was more of a, a kind of 80s queen kid. Yeah. But uh, actually their music from the 70s is what I prefer. Do you sing? Sounds like you do. I sing a little bit. I've been in a couple of musicals. I'm, really? I'm no Freddie Mercury, but then no-one else is. <laughs> Will you give us a little snatch from Bohemian Rhapsody? From Bohemian yes, Rhapsody? Yes, or, or wherever. Um, Barcelona. Ah, I had this perfect dream... This dream was me and you. I think I'll probably stop there and save the ears of your listeners. Now, Leslie-Ann, you met the man himself, I believe. Tell us a bit about that. I met Freddie when I was a, a young scumbag journalist on Fleet Street and I was sent to interview him. And Freddie and Brian were there. And Freddie was pretty silent for the entire session. And Brian did most of the talking. But he would be quite funny sometimes. And when Freddie would laugh spontaneously, his hand would fly to his mouth to cover up his teeth because he was very shy about showing his teeth to people he didn't know. He had extra teeth in the back of his mouth that pushed his front teeth forwards. So he had a very pronounced overbite. And he wouldn't do anything about it because he thought that it would change his voice. So he had to trust you before he would let you see his teeth. And that was the thing that stood out. <laughs> Were you drawn mind. to him? Very drawn to him, yeah. I didn't know he was gay at that point, And I think the world didn't really know. 
I think maybe the gay community understood his orientation, but yeah, some of us never had any doubt. We didn't know, <laughs> uh, and he, he, we certainly never discussed it. And he never came out. He did. He did make a comment, I think, in the seventies, to the melody maker or the enemy. I'm as gay as a daffodil. I think mm. the point about him is he he didn't hide what he was. He may not have made any statements, but he was completely himself, wasn't he? He was and he wasn't. He he came from a very closed religious community, the Zoroastrian Parsis. Uh, homosexuality is not allowed in their community or in their religion. And so he wouldn't embarrass them by, by coming out and making a statement. I, I want to go back to that in a moment and, and talk about his, his childhood, his origins and, and all that. But just slightly left-field question... Here, Matt, what would he have done? What would someone like him have done if he hadn't been a musician? Well, one of the things some people know and some people don't is that Freddie designed the original Queen logo and he'd studied at art school, hadn't he? Yeah, Ealing College of Art. Right, mm. so, so he may have gone on to become an artist of some sort. He wouldn't have just done a humdrum job ever, would he? No, no, no. He was there was one one point where he was hawking his art folder around the agencies of London. He graduated in 69 and he was taking his little folder around, but there was never really any question that Freddie would take a regular job. And I actually don't think he would have been anything else other than a rock star. I think he would have died trying. The other three wanted it, but they would have had other careers. Brian would have been an astrophysicist and Roger would have been a dentist and John would have been a, an electronics expert with his first-class degree, honours, you know. They would yeah. have all had careers. Freddie had no other career in mind. You and Freddie, Matt, have something big in common. You're both fearless, outrageous. I, I can't tell you how much I admire the way you bound crazily onto the stage, your, your, your sheer shamelessness. It's part of your stock in trade. But in real life, I think you're not like that at all. Can a fearless stage presence, and I'm thinking of Freddie as well as you, can it be a kind of thing that you escape into? Yeah, well, it's another manifestation. And actually, I'm very dull. And um, I say this word with a small c, so as not to offend you, conservative off stage, uh, and then I get on stage and I'm, I, yeah, I access a different. It's amazing. Part it's as if myself. a completely different person and, pops out. And I'm absolutely influenced by Freddie in, in his approach. Yeah, my teen self had posters of Freddie, and I, I truly idolised him. And it was his swagger. Yeah. And I was 18 years old in 1992 when I started doing stand up, and Freddie Mercury died only a year earlier. And uh, I, would, I was listening to his music every day and I would listen to his music before I went on stage because mm. I, was, I was shy and I was scared and uh, closeted at that time myself. And I would always think of Freddie before I went on stage to do stand-up in clubs because I would perform in character and I would just visualise his, his strut. Mm. And his swagger as he went on stage and, and try and do my own sort of tribute to it. Leslie-Anne, I want to talk about his mother, who I think wanted him to be an accountant, but she recognised his talent pretty early on. We can hear a clip of her here. Are you ready? Huh? You ready, brothers and sisters? We sisters all used to play piano. And when my Freddie started playing piano at about eight or nine years, my mother 
she used to say, I think that boy's got something. Leslie, and tell me about his family and where he was born. Freddie was born in Zanzibar, but his family were Indian Parsis. The Parsis were Zoroastrians who'd made their way from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, yeah. down into India. And his father and the father's brothers, Bomi was his name, they went to Zanzibar in search of work. And Bomi got a job as a cashier with the British government. He went home to India to marry Jur, Freddie's mother, uh, probably was an arranged marriage, and then they went back to Zanzibar. She was only 18 when she gave birth to Freddie in 1946. They had quite a privileged lifestyle in Zanzibar. They had servants. Freddie had a nanny, an ayah. And until the revolution in 1964, this was their life. In Zanzibar, in yeah. In Zanzibar. Which was a very nasty Very r- nasty, but revolution. before that, yeah. the parents decided, because education in Zanzibar was very limited, and he'd gone to the Anglican school there, the missionary school, and been taught by nuns. But at the age of eight, he had to go somewhere else, and they decided to dispatch him to India, which was an awful thing to do, because he was sent thousands of miles away to school on his own, on a ship, at eight years old, and he suffered terrible separation anxiety. He could only see his parents once a year after that, and he would write very formal letters because there were no phone lines in those days, in the 50s. So the letters were heartbreaking, you know, dear mother and father, in very formal language, and no possibility of any contact with them during half-terms and holidays. He would go to Bombay. And that void that was created in Freddie by this massive separation anxiety was the thing that drove him, I believe, to become a rock star because he needed something massive to fill that. And he was woken up by Western pop music arriving in India in the late 50s. So Gene Vincent and Elvis Presley and Cliff Richard and The Shadows, these kind of things were switching him on. And he dropped his studies, he stopped studying classical piano and he formed a band, The Hectics, and that was the beginning of it all. Freddie Mercury's biographer, Leslie Ann Jones. Also there, Matt Lucas and host Matthew Paris on Great Lives from BBC Radio 4. The show's produced by Miles Ward. And thanks to Michael Huddleston for the recommendation. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address if you would like to do the same. An influential podcast hit a significant milestone recently when WTF with Mark Maron reached its 1,000th episode. Recording the show in his garage, Maron's interview with Barack Obama in June 2015 often gets mentioned alongside Serial as one of those important moments when podcasting really took off. Because I don't know how you deal from day to day. I was panicking all morning. You know, I, I don't imagine you were flying in here on the chopper thinking like, you know, I, I am nervous about Mark. No, I wasn't. Okay, well, that's good. That yeah. makes <laughs> that would be a problem. It would be a problem. If the president was feeling yeah. stressed about <laughs> coming to my garage. Coming to your garage. Do you think this, this is the best work you're doing of your life right now? That's kind of difficult, you know, because I was in the Beatles. Why are you taking the other side of everything I say? I'm not. I'm just saying You are. I'm almost... Why did you want me to do this interview if you don't think I know anything about what you're asking me about? I'm just telling... You're done? We were having a good conversation. Oh, come on, Gallagher.
WTF's guest list over this past decade reads a bit like a who's who of the music and the entertainment worlds. Robin Williams, Keith Richards, Bruce Springsteen. But the show's also been pretty life-changing for its host. In a sense, WTF's become a story about his personal development too. When I started this, I was bitter, a bit washed up, brokenhearted, and without a, a lot of prospects in the business I dedicated or committed my life to. Yeah, I could do stand-up here and there. But all the rest of it, I was like, not going to happen. Who the f*** knows what I'm going to do now? Let's do this. And because of this, everything else happened. It's quite a story. Weird combination of a skill, um, patience, insanity, a little bit of cosmic timing played into it. But I just, I can't, I just can't imagine my life without it. I need to talk to people. I need to put this thing out there. I need it to think. And I don't always take a second to appreciate what I've accomplished or be grateful for where I am in my life, but I will do that here in front of you. I, 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 I truly am proud of uh, what we've done with this show. But really, it's just been about me and Brendan, the guests in here, and, uh, and, and the people who listen. And my brain. My neurotic, dread-filled, compulsive, engaged brain. I'm grateful for that. I could still use some tweaking. For WTF's 1,000th episode, there were no famous guests, just Mark Maron and his longtime producer, Brendan McDonald, pulling back the curtain on the production process and reflecting on their friendship and creative partnership. There were some great stories, lots of listener emails, and some moving moments, too. Well, I think this is a good question for, like, for personal reflection here. Mm. It's a very good um, kind of summary question. And it, it really goes to your kind of personal evolution, which yeah. is what we've been talking about over the course of a thousand episodes, really, is, is you know, that, that one-man audio journal that I talked about. Yeah. And uh, this is from Adam. And he says, given where it all began, just one question. Is being Mark Marin getting easier? Yes. Being Mark Maron is getting easier because when you've been as desperate and as angry and as insecure and as destructive as I've been in my life, you know, personally, and you realize that, you know, all you all you've been doing your whole life is working towards this one thing. By the time I started to the podcast, you know, I, I believe that I had failed, you know, at, at the one thing and that there was no more things. And this was this was it. But what started to happen, which happened, you know, in my forties, and you know, it ha- and it happened in a very specific way, in a unique way, which was that, you know, I was doing something that really showed my most authentic self, and uh, and really engaged all parts of my heart and mind and and uh, creativity. And that it began to resonate like something relaxed in me. There was a pride. There was a there was the self-esteem that comes from accomplishment of, of working your whole life. And somehow in the last half or the second half or God forbid, the last quarter, you, you, you make it. There was a big part of 
my struggle that was relieved mm. and a certain amount of fear went away around you know, doing stand up and around you know being who I am and about owning myself because now everybody owned it everybody who listened to me you, you know it was part of me well i think you know it's interesting you're articulating something that people who listen i, I know they they feel the same way um like these two emails i'll read them back to back and and it's i think a very you know it's just two two people two guys um but i just i think a lot of people receive your growth as a positive and as a thing that not only is, is good for you, but good for, for them. Yeah. Mark, I write to you as a fan of the early days of the podcast and honestly, well before I was a devoted Conan kid as a teen slash preteen. And I used to love how weird you would make stuff and how you would win the audience back. I looked into your standup after that and followed you since. And once WTF took off, I was so excited and proud of you. I'm roughly 30 years younger than you but have always related to the sadness and anger and thoughtfulness you've put out in the world. The care you've recently grown into, the ability to recognize yourself and your limitations, but not in a self-pitying way, rather in a way that offers a possibility to grow and learn despite your positions of privilege, has been very illuminating. Your growth from I am angry at the world to I am angry at myself to I am learning to reconcile my anger with a way in which I am capable of improving the world is very inspirational to me. Thank you for that. And that's yeah. from Joel. Yeah. And there's a similar message here from Ryan. <sighs> As someone who followed you since my frustrated days sitting in a cubicle listening to tickets still available and thinking, shit, I hope this guy is okay. I'm glad to see your success. I didn't realize that I cared about your career back then. I guess seeing someone who shared similar frustrations see some reward because of them gave me hope in a fairness that I didn't believe in. Your success directly contradicts the cynicism and frustration that brought it. Your success felt like our success, when us is the people who have been rooting for you. I'm glad you didn't kill yourself, and I hope you get Dylan or Tom Waits at some point. I think that's the only way to top the Obama interview. Congratulations, uh, Ryan. Okay. I mean, I, I feel the same way as that guy. Yeah. Like, I feel personally linked to your progress in yeah. this. Like, I was... It's more than I was just rooting for you. Yeah. I invested my own sense of self in making sure you were doing okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I, I understand why people can connect to that and, and that it means something. Your personal progress means something to people. Some of WTF with Mark Maron's 1,000th episode. And thanks to Mark's producer, Brendan McDonald, whose voice you heard there, for letting me share those clips with you. Now, another podcast made in a garage, this one belonging to a couple living in Mount Monganui. Sam and Stacey Hurley started up movie reviews in 20 Qs back in 2016. And on each episode, they invite their friends and fellow podcasters on to answer 20 questions about a film, with questions and answers that tend towards the funny and the offbeat. So, to use a few safe-for-work examples, how long would you survive in this movie's world? What characters would you take with you on a road trip? And how would you incorporate Nicolas Cage into the storyline? Each episode gets thousands of listeners, the vast majority of them based in the US, and I'll speak to Sam, the film nerd in the relationship, in just a moment. First, though, here's a taster with the 1988 film Die Hard as the subject. Sam and Stacey are joined by fellow podcasters Paul from the Countdown podcast and Gidget from Retro Cinema. That's a show dedicated to films of the 80s. And the question is, who would star in Die Hard if you had to recast it without Bruce Willis? 
For me, if I was recasting it in the 80s, the other one that was a comedian that made the jump to action films and did them amazingly was Eddie Murphy. And this would have been roughly around the height of his powers. Yep. Coming after Beverly Hills Cop and 48 Hours and all those ones. So, yeah, yeah, that's yep. who I'd take. I, I really struggle to think of someone nowadays that I'd recast this with. I just don't feel like there's anyone mm. out there. There's no real everyman who's slightly beefcakey, but not like Arnold beefcakey. Like, there's no... Well, hang on. If I can launch off that, Sam, because we actually did a recasting of Die Hard and we did it as if it were being remade today about two and a half years ago on the show. And my answer then was Matt Damon because he's a bit more relatable than most of these action heroes. Even as Jason Bourne, he wasn't quite so ridiculously over the top and, and superhuman compared to, I think anyway, the, the everyday person. Besides, really the only, I think the only action hero star we have today is The Rock, and we've already seen his version of Die Hard called Skyscraper, oh, and it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you mentioned Matt Damon, because for some reason that line has burnt in my head out of 40-Year-Old Virgin, where Paul Rudd is watching Jason Bourne, and he's like, man, I always thought Damon was a f***ing Streisand, but he's kicking ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good pick, though, because he was great as Bourne. He does come across as the everyday sort of man. He's not super ripped or anything like that. So, no. yeah. Yeah, I could see yeah, that. No, yeah, that's a good pick. Thanks. I would pick uh, R.I.P. Bill Paxton. Oh, yeah. Good yeah, old Bill. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Back in the 80s for sure. Yep. Yep. Back in his aliens days. You know, he played a Marine, but he can also represent the everyday man. So that's that's who I'd pick. Nice. Yeah, good Thank answers. You. Well done, guys. I didn't actually have an answer for this, but as soon as you said beefcake, Sam, guess what popped into my head? Chris Hemsworth. as as, uh, John McClane (laughs) somewhere right now some studio executive's assistant has gone ooh and gone straight to their boss and I bet you within the next two to three years we're going to see a diehard rebooted with Chris Hemsworth because they've already tried with one Australian of Joy Courtney. They're oh going to try. <laughs> no, 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 no. Cancel that. Let's forget about that. And they'll, and they'll get Margot Robbie to play uh, his wife. Yeah. yeah. I'm all right with that. <laughs> Hugh Jackman as Hans Gruber. Yeah. No, sorry. Hugh Jackman can't. He's just announced a world tour singing for the next year. Oh, oh yeah, true. And he's kind of, I don't know, does he play a baddie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did in Prisoners. Yeah. Okay. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. And here's the movie reviews in 20Q's duo talking to their mate Spanky about the animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That moves us right along to my second question, question number 18. We've got a Spider-Man, we've got an Ant-Man, we've got like Hawkman and, and DC. Um, Black Widow. We've got a Black Widow, we've got all sorts of... Uh, Black Panther. We've got a Rhino and a Black Panther. and Vulture. And a, a, a Vulture, yeah. It sounds like we, we're not going to have very many options here for Wolverine. you guys <laughs> to invent your own uh, animal-based superhero for yourself, obviously. Catwoman. <laughs> for me, this one is easy. I did a quick Google to see which animals have superpowers because you know how Spider-Man sort of gets spider powers. And I noticed that the salamander has regenerative abilities. So I want to be Samalander. <laughs> Samalander <laughs> ding-dong. <laughs> Would you have a tail? Yeah, why right, not? Right. I'd, ha- I'd have regenerative abilities. So I'd be like Wolverine, but I'd also be like a salamander. Samalander ding-dong. And you don't move in like, you know, like you move like sideways by doing that sideways shuffly thing. I can if I want. Yeah, yeah. why not? Yeah, crawl up corners of walls and shit. Yeah. What is a salamander? So like a lizard. Oh. Lizard. There's another lizard, lizard man. man. <laughs> well, there it is, a lizard. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, salamander. That'd be me. Okay, I'm going with something I've never heard of. Hopefully, it doesn't exist. And that is a glowworm-based superhero. 
Right. And there it is. There's the what the moment of the podcast. There is the rival to Squirrel Girl. Yeah. <laughs> it's Glowworm Girl. Yeah. Glowworm. So what do you do? At night time you bring brightly well, so that yeah. bad guys can find you. No, well you could team up with like Ant-Man and you could provide the lighting system for Ant-Man. Provide and the, the lighting <laughs> Yeah, glow, glow, by glowing. Maybe you could kill people with the brightness of your glow. Holy shit. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Like, I'm going to join the Avengers. It, what are you going to do? I'm going to light their hallways. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm going to make sure Everyone can make it to the toilet at night. No, it's brighter. Doctor Doom's attacking, but I can't find my car keys. Get in here, glowworm girl. So I asked Sam Hurley why he started up the podcast. One day I went and saw a interview, or sort of like a, a night with Kevin Smith, the film director, and he sort of was basically saying to anyone in the crowd, you know, if you've got an idea or anything, just go out and do it. Just don't listen to anyone else. You know, just do it. Just make it happen and. You know, don't listen to the naysayers, basically. So I used to talk about wanting to start a podcast for ages. And then my wife, I was originally going to do it with one of my friends, Spanky and Emma. And then my wife just got sick of it and was just like, look, if you're going to do one, let's just do one. I'll do it. And I was like, why do you have no interest in movies whatsoever? And she was like, no, no, I'll do it. Okay. Oh, the, the whole gimmick will be, I, I won't know anything about movies. You'll know too much. People will relate to me. They'll think you're a nerd. And I was like, okay, yep, that's fine. Yeah, I can, I can do that. So... We started with that idea, but then we sort of thought, well, there's a million other movie podcasts out there and they all seem to be doing the same thing. So why don't we do something different? Why don't we ask 20 questions about a movie and we'll make it rather than like what are the themes or the thoughts and emotions and stuff like that that you, you think the director's trying to convey to you or anything like that. We'll try and keep it really simple. So we'll say, you know, what flavor pizza is this movie or, you know, what character this movie needs to get laid or something like that. You want to just keep it like really sort of accessible to people out there so they can sort of tune in, listen and like basically hear a couple of normal people talk about movies, basically. And it's probably quite good having Stacey involved because the conversation then isn't just a quite geeky or esoteric one about the intricacies <laughs> of a certain bit of sci-fi or something. Well, they do have a lot of animated Star Wars out there that oh, you don't look that interested in checking out by the no. way your face is turned. Yeah. No, but... She kind of constantly seems to bring you down to earth a bit and say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, I can pontificate about how... You know, French New Wave cinema completely changed Hollywood into the 70s. And I can talk about how Kurosawa is, like, even his undiscovered gems are some of his best films and all that sort of stuff. And I even find it now because I've, I've grown up as a massive Marvel nerd. And obviously all the Marvel movies are really popular now. So I love doing them. And she'll often cut me off halfway through. I was like, no one cares. Absolutely no one cares. <laughs> And Ooh, the only people cool. that do care already knows so you don't need to tell them the same things they know. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I just threw this one in as a bit of fun. We all loved Bruce Willis in this role, but <laughs> let's just recast him for fun. You're trying to give us a mental breakdown. You even told me this when you were coming out with this question. You were like... But that's some of the charm, isn't it? She's coming at it with oh, a totally. totally different take to you. That's the key, I guess. Yeah, and that's it's sort of been the one of the big driving forces of our popularity is the number of like female listeners that we get that message us and say, my favourite episodes are the Stacey episodes because she actually comes from a point of view that most of us have when we watch a movie, which is watch the movie, enjoy it, move on, not, you know, let it, you know, go around in your head a million times and then Don't make a it podcast about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally, exactly. So how long did it take for you to kind of have the idea and think Look, we're going to do something a bit different to actually making a podcast that from scratch... It must be quite a daunting prospect to getting it out there and then getting people listening to it and spreading the popularity of it by word of mouth. That doesn't happen overnight, does it? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. We 
our very first one we did, which is which is literally just a sort of trial run of three of us are sitting around an iPhone in my lounge, like, okay, yeah, let's try this out. Let's see if this works. And I listened back to it and I was like, okay, the content's really good, you know, but the sound quality and all that sort of stuff's pretty average, but we can work on that. Now we've just got to work out, does anyone else out there actually really enjoy the sound of our voices or the points we have to make? And like, it, it is scary. It's terrifying. You put stuff out there, you've got no idea what people think and all this other stuff. And like, admittedly, for the first oh, six months or so, you know, we were getting like maybe a hundred listens a week and we were like, what are we doing this for? And I always said to Stacey, I was like, look, if, if we get one random person in the world, contact us and go, hey, I listened to your podcast. I found it really funny. I really enjoy it then I, f I feel like we've had a success. And she was like, okay. And then we got that. And then that sort of snowballed into the point we are now, which quite randomly a political journalist in Turkey wrote an article about us. And normally she covers Trump and all his downfall and Brexit and all that sort of stuff. But she then turned around and she's got 45,000 followers on Twitter or something like that and wrote an article about how we're one of her favorite podcasts to listen to. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, <laughs> And it seems, it seems like that now every time is – every time we sort of move up the ranks and start getting more popular and stuff, it, it just it flummoxes me. I, I go on and, you know, I have people arguing with me about my choices that I made and, you know, the yeah. answers I gave to questions and stuff like that. And then, like, I, I love it because it's that, that's some sort of engagement of um, people that we want. And it's, yeah, it's taken us two years or so to get to the point we are now. We had like a sort of six month break and, yeah, it's gone from tens of listens, hundreds of listens to thousands of listens. And yeah, we, we just can't get over it. Yeah. Okay, question number three. What deep philosophical debate arose in you during this film, Sam? How would I react if I came face to face with me? Another version of me. <laughs> Do you have a sense of how the popularity spread? I mean, is, has it kind of been geographical? It's gone over to Australia and it's been a kind of ripple? Or has someone suddenly got onto it over in America? And then do you have any sense of, of how the popularity of it's built and why? Yeah, yeah, the geographical disbursement is um, quite interesting because of the podcast hosts we've got, they can sort of break down the stats for you. And I'd say 85% of our listeners are now American. And I'd say about 5% are New Zealanders and 5% are also Australians. And then the other you know, sort of 5% or whatever is just a broad mix of UK, um, Canada, places like that. And that's that's the funny part because we, you know, New Zealand entertainment has been notorious over in America and England for not catching on because everyone hates the sound of our accents. So me and Stacey were incredibly fearful of that, of like, are, are America going to enjoy this? Are they really going to like hearing a sort of nasally monotone accent person talk about movies? But yeah, no, it seems like it's working out well. <laughs> And I guess the, the the thing is that you have got a distinctive voice. You do stand apart from the crowd because, you know, let, let's be honest, there are lots of movie other movie podcasts out there, but what you're doing sounds different and it's a different approach. It's a different format. Yeah, exactly. There's only, there's very few sort of New Zealand movie podcasts is what we discovered because like part of this is we, we were very lucky early on that in a couple of Australian podcasts started sharing us and retweeting us and then have had us on the show and stuff like that. And as a result, some of their fans have sort of come over to become our fans. And so we've always tried to look for other New Zealand podcasts out there to try and support and stuff, but there's not very many. There's the worst idea of all time is probably the most popular one. That's one of the most popular New Zealand podcasts that's ever happened, I think. But That's Tim Batten, Guy Montgomery, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And they're very much on the hit list of people that I'll eventually get on the show if yeah. I get a chance. So you've got thousands of listeners every episode, but is it making you any money? I mean, you've still got another job, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. I still work full time. Uh, we now have a Patreon. We have people that give us money to basically appear and, you know, have their question in the show in the first 10 questions. 
And we've got a couple of other little ones and stuff like that. And that's really the only way to make money from podcasting, I've discovered. Like you can run ads and get sponsors and all that sort of stuff. And we've actually been sort of approached by a couple of sponsors. But at the moment, we really like how we've got control over it. We like how we're able to put out a product that only we have a say in it. Because that's another thing too. We've been approached by a couple of networks that are like, we would like to put you on our podcast thing. And it's sort of the same thing. They're like, you know, all we need from you is regular content. That's all we need. And you know, and that sort of stuff. But what we like at the moment is the flexibility that, you know, if we're not feeling it one week or we can't be bothered going to the movies or, you know, doing anything, we we aren't doing, having to force ourselves through that. Like similar to what we were talking about before, you don't really want to force yourself through a movie because yeah. typically those are the worst episodes. We've scrapped a couple where I've listened back to them. I'm like, who the hell would want to listen to this? I don't want to listen to this. So, so there's, um, there, there are sort of avenues to making money from podcasting and we're, yeah, we're now making like a little bit, but not heaps. Yeah. We're certainly not going to quit our day jobs over it. Yeah. Sam Hurley of the Movie Reviews in 20Q's podcast. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Ever wanted to be happier, wealthier, fitter, more productive, an all-round better version of you? Well, if you do, there's a podcast for that. NPR's Life Kit series, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and Work Life with Adam Grant are just a few popular examples. With The Pineapple Project, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation also aims to get in on this self-improvement vibe. Season one tackled money issues and season two takes on work, from nailing job interviews to networking and dealing with a horrible boss. Here's an episode all about work meetings, why so many people hate them, and what you can do about it, with host Claire Hooper speaking to author Donna McGeorge. Okay, your book is called The 25-Minute Meeting, so you've obviously decided 25 is the good length. What, what's so good about 25 minutes? I wish that it was just me that decided yeah, that, right. but um, it's... The 25 Minutes came about through mostly through the work of a, a guy called Francesco Cirillo who wrote a book called The Pomodoro Method, which is about... Is um, that potato? Tomato. Okay. But you say potato... You yeah, say tomato. Correct. I say pomodoro, actually. There now. you go. Now you do. <laughs> he did a whole bunch of research around what's the optimal amount of time that people can focus on one thing at work, and he found that it was 25 minutes. And so I then had a look at, at that, then some a whole bunch of other studies, and, and it seems 25 minutes is a pretty consistent number that people can be focused, get stuff done before they start to feel distracted and, and need to, you know, put their energy elsewhere. Too often we just accept meeting invitations or set up meetings without really thinking about it. We're kind of operating out of default. So I'd love it if everyone was more conscious or purposeful about why they were having meetings or why they were attending meetings. So if you're invited to a meeting or you're setting up a meeting, really be clear about why this meeting is happening and who are the right people to help us achieve our purpose. So if you're not running the meeting, how do you bring about good meeting practices? First of all, you decide you're going to, and I reckon it's about how you facilitate the meeting. So if it's starting to waffle a bit, start to ask some more pointed questions. If you feel like it's going off track, you know, can we bring it back? If you feel like there's no outcomes happening, ask people quite specifically, what are we going to do as a result of this meeting? What's next? What's our next steps? What's our actions? So just ask the right questions, get it back on track. Uh, yep. What are the world's great bosses doing when it comes to running a good meeting. So Elon Musk, for example, he's a stickler for 
preparation. So if you don't show up prepared to contribute, he'll nearly kick you out of a meeting. Steve Jobs and Barack Obama always loved doing their meetings walking around. So there's lots of cool things that people do to... A to walking make meeting? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I've done them myself. Yeah, they're yeah. very cool. Yeah, so often a meeting is, if it's particularly between two people, you and I are having a conversation about something, we don't have to be sitting inside and around a table. We could go grab a cup of coffee and walk around the block or get some fresh air. And given that a lot of our workplaces are so sedentary in nature, what a cool thing to do is go for a walk to have the meeting. I've done it a lot. Okay, that would make a better meeting and that would make a better interview. Let's take this outside, Donna. All right. All right, here's what I'm interested in. You just said some people aren't meant to be there and sometimes you find yourself there and you're like, well, that clearly wasn't necessary to this meeting. Is, is it okay to say, no, you don't need me when you hear about the meeting? Absolutely. It's actually okay to say, why specifically do you need me there? So that's a great question to ask first, just to Ooh. double check because maybe it hasn't been clear. So what specifically do you want me to do there? It what? sounds a bit passive aggressive. Well, I suppose it all depends on how you say it. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, okay, so how true. about this? So why do you need me there? You know, maybe that's yeah. a bit better. <laughs> and so we want to understand what, I, for me, it's around what value do you want me to give and what value do, do you think I'm going to get from, from being there? Because you've got to be very careful. Some people just invite you to be a spectator at a meeting as opposed to being a contributor to a meeting. That's ridiculous. What a waste of your time. Correct. Like, just, yeah, that's right. Just send me a one-line email afterwards. I was fantastic. You should have been there. That's all you need, right? <laughs> Totally. So um, I think I've touched on this before. If you're not running the meetings, what control do you have over whether it's a good meeting or not? Is it, What can you do? Not a lot, but I did see, a, you know, a colleague of mine once was in that situation and she just decided to simply start asking questions to facilitate a bit of a process. And so as, a, as she could feel like the meeting was going nowhere, she just said, stop, can we just do a quick whip around the table? Just what's your current position on this? And just started to, you know, just kind of take it, not control, but just ask some questions. Um, what a sweet power move. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else can you do? Volunteer to take notes? Look, you could. One of the things, bits of advice I give is just decide that it's going to be 25 minutes <laughs> and do what you need to do to make that happen. So if it starts to be waffly, interrupt. Or if it looks like we're not going to get action items, take notes. Can you fake an appointment? I mean, can you say, uh, just, just up top, I just want to let everyone know I have to be gone at 11.25. Yeah, I call that the hard stop. So yeah. you just announce when you walk in, hey, everyone, I've got a hard stop at 12. Ooh, hard stop. Yeah, I know, right? That sounds like it's really serious. Could be lunch, but they don't need yeah. to know that. <laughs> um, all right, so here's one for you. Is there a... We're going to keep walking. Look at this. I can't... We've never made anyone do this before. Um, all right, so is there a best time for a meeting? Uh, well... Yes and no. Okay. Um, the more important the meeting, the earlier in the day it should happen. Oh. So if it's a really important meeting, if it's going to require you to use a lot of your brain power, you'll get better results if you do it before 12, mostly because your brain is like a battery and by the end of the day it starts to run out and things like decision fatigue kick in. Yes. Yeah, and so, yeah, morning better. Is there something to be said, though, for not making it 9am because of what it does to people's early productivity? You know, they've got their own tasks that they want to tick off the minute they hit the office. It, it simply depends on how important it is. OK. Yeah. Yep. So if it's a high-impact situation, then actually nine in the morning is the perfect time. Everyone's fresh, ready to go, their brains are on fire. But does that just mean that if, if you're scheduling the meeting for after 12, it means it's not very important, so don't even have it! <laughs> just do 
I do the meeting. That's an email. That's an email if you're scheduling it after 12. I always think about, is it a high impact and how intense do I need to be in that? And so intensity is how much brain power am I going to use? Mm -hmm. So when it's really important to me and I need to be on, I make sure that it happens in the morning. For everyone else, if you need to talk to me about something and it's not that important, fine, we'll do it in the afternoon. No problem. <sighs> Gets you puffed walking and talking, doesn't it? Indeed. Still, my brain's working better. <laughs> so I'm going to pin you down on this. Politely declining a meeting yep. that you know you're not necessary for or that you're not available for, initially you might say, so why specifically do I need to be there? But then their answer is unsatisfactory. What do you do? Um, I just say, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I've got, oh. yeah, so I, I, you know, I, I wish I had something more... Um, profound. Indeed. But, some, I'm, but I'm, I'm actually not about profound. It's right. Keep it simple. It's just, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't make that meeting. All right. Um, great. We're going to sit down now. Um, how do you be the person who runs a good meeting? Here's my top tips for running a meeting. Show up on time yourself. And on time doesn't mean if a meeting's starting at nine, you get there at nine. Be there five minutes early so you can get organised what you need to get organised. Ask yourself before the meeting, what is it that I really want to get out of this? So the best question to ask is, by the end of this meeting, I'll be happy if, so that you really understand the point of the meeting. Send questions or purpose of the meeting out at least 24 hours before the meeting so that everyone has a chance to think about um, their contribution and, and prepare accordingly. Ban technology. Leave phones off or out, outside the door altogether and say, you know, don't bring laptops in. If you're using a 25-minute meeting, for example, surely people can go 25 minutes without having to make a phone call or send an email. And manage diversions. So if, if you get a hijacker in the meeting that is taking things off track, gently remind them by simply saying, look, you know, great point, Bob. I'm wondering if we can take that offline. Today what I really want to cover off is this and just bring people gently back to the reason and, and the agenda or purpose for the meeting. One of the things that I really think is important in meetings is to take action points and agreements that people have made. And it's super simple. You can either jump up to a whiteboard and grab a marker pen and just jot down what people have said or take notes in your notebook. And again, this is when you're allowed to use technology. Take a photo of it and you can immediately distribute it to people very easily so that everyone's clear about what was discussed, what was agreed and what their actions were. Well, this uh, has been wonderful. I'd appreciate it if you turn your phone on silent next time too, Donna. <laughs> Donna McGeorge. Donna's the author of the 25-minute meeting. Now, at Better Hustle, it's time to meet my work wife. <laughs> Who's that player? Mm. Walking down the hall. Uh -huh. She's carrying a folder. Ow. I'm going to give her a call. Yeah. Work wife or husband? Because it's not a gendered term, guys. That's the way I like to work it. Yeah. Wife. Oh, hey, work wife. It's time for our meeting, but don't worry. I'll keep it to 25 minutes. Uh, don't you think that's a bit long to be standing around in here? This is where we always meet. You've just followed me into the toilets. Yes. Your voice sounds so good in here. It amplifies it. Now, funny you should mention amplification. Let me tell you about an amazing thing that Obama's female staff used to do in meetings. They noticed they were, well, how do I put this? Oh, yes, being ignored by their male colleagues. So they introduced a technique they called amplification. When a woman made a key point in a meeting, other women in the room would repeat it and acknowledge where the idea had come from. That meant their male colleagues couldn't take credit for their ideas. Pass me a paper towel. 
I don't know if everyone heard Virginia's great suggestion, but she's proposed that I pass her a paper towel. Great amplification. There you go. Uh, I'll let you put that in the bin for me as well. Meeting adjourned. But we still have 24 of our 25 minutes left. Ah, uh, she packs a lot into one minute. Thanks, work wife. Some of the Pineapple Project from ABC Audio Studios, presented by Claire Hooper, produced by Carla Arnold with sound engineering from John Jacobs, featuring Donna McGeorge and Virginia Trioli. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now, as well as uh, the Pineapple Project. This week we've been listening to Great Lives, WTF with Mark Maron, and movie reviews in 20 Qs. Listening recommendations to pods at rnz.co.nz, please. And until next time, from me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.